If you think about how the authors of the Neijing were trying to encapsulate their embodied experiences in language, this is what the Neijing is, you could say. It's like their best attempt at, at writing down what they were embodying. What you just described is like, oh, this is something that's embodied to you now. So our job, our process is the opposite. Our process is to take what they have written and then embody it in, in our experiences. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I remember watching the conversations between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell in the late 80s, partly because the content of the conversations spoke so deeply to the unspoken and yet present energies of life, and I suspect also because I loved the Greek and Roman myths as a kid. I would read them over and over again, and as an adult realized they're not fiction, but deeply textured maps of the human psyche. Those conversations came up in a conversation not long ago, and I threw in on purchasing the series, like the dialogues between Huangdi and Chibo, or Socrates and his students, or you and your friends discussing medicine for that matter. There is something that emerges in dialogue that you can't get from a lecture or orientation. In the second episode, Campbell says this, myth is a manifestation in symbolic images, metaphorical images of the energies within us moved by the organs of the body in conflict with each other. You can't be a practitioner of Chinese medicine and not be completely floored by this statement. It bespeaks the unity in our medicine that goes from the heavenly stems to the turn of the seasons to the function of the organs, along with the workings of the Sheng and Ke cycles. Campbell goes on to say that in our ever-changing world, that what was proper 50 years ago is not proper today. The virtues of the past are the vices of today, and many of what we thought to be vices of the past are necessities of today, and that the moral order has to catch up with the moral necessities of actual life and time, here and now, and that is why you can't go back to old-time religion, why you can't lean on the past to navigate the present. But as with myth, there are stories, there are maps that transcend time. It doesn't mean that we have to go back and adopt the old ways. There is something illuminative that moves through time. And if we can catch that in our present moment, be ignited by the spark that opened the mind, perception, and practice of those we describe as great doctors, then there is the possibility of practicing medicine in a way that is both rooted in fundamentals and allows us to unfold our practice in a way that's helpful for the times in which we live. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine 
And the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS, text, or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. We like to think of our medicine as being something ancient, but also relevant and useful for modern times. There are ideas and concepts like that of E, often translated as intention, significance, or meaning, and Xing, which means form. On first glance, this might seem we are talking about matter on one hand and something immaterial on the other, but as with so much in East Asian medicine, it's not about one thing or another, but rather something of a vital interplay. In this conversation with Stephen Grace, we look at some classical Chinese and see what it might have to say to us here in this modern moment. We look at the importance of 
verifying the words of the ancients in the experience of the present and how the idea of tong is not just about creating an opening, but how it is connective in surprising ways. Let's get into this. Stephen Grace, welcome to Geological. Thank you for having me, Michael. I'm glad to be here. I'm delighted to have you. We uh, met briefly at one of Sabine Wilms's uh, tea time talks. Yeah, Shing and Chi. Shing and Chi. You were you and Brenda Hood. That was supposed to be the topic. Of course, it meanders, which is not a bad thing by any means. But that was the intended topic. Well, of course it meanders. Shing and Chi. I mean, okay. Like, good luck nailing those down. Yeah, yeah, right. So pretty much everything, material and immateriality. (laughs) Exactly. Everything under the sun and above the sun, literally. That's right. And pre-sun and post-sun. Pre-sun and (laughs) (laughs) post-sun. And I kind of wanted to touch on some of that. And I love talking about chi because chi is the most difficult. I would say it's impossible to translate into English. Oh, absolutely. It's one of those characters that should just be left as is. And it's interesting because I think it's one of them that has made its way into uh, popular Western culture as in its own right. Not necessarily correct or uh, all-encompassing definition in people's minds, but still, you you could say the word chi, and most people in, out in the world who aren't specialists have at least heard that term. Yes. That's pretty cool, I think. Just that word has made, at least that word has made that leap. It has. Yin and Yang also have made the leap to the common vernacular. And I sense that we as Westerners, we think we might understand something of what these things are, but I think we're usually wrong. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been thinking about these things not as long as you have, probably 15 years, and I still don't think that I understand everything about those things. That's part of the point. Mm-hmm. But I think part of it is our language. I think part of it is the, just the nature of the English language is that it's always seeking to pinpoint things in as specific a manner as possible. It is. It's really what English like excels at. I, it's not a bad thing. It's just the nature of, it, of the language. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the opposite of, I think, how classical Chinese functions. And that's a hard thing to wrap your brain around if you haven't encountered that way of thinking before. It is. I would say I don't really know much classical Chinese. I've studied some modern Chinese. And one of the things that used to drive me crazy is how obtuse it was. It's like purposefully attempting not to nail things down. Yeah. It leaves tons of wiggle room. Yeah. Like all the time. And it would make, as a Westerner, initially learning it, it would drive me batshit crazy. Totally. I think part of that is because we all speak this language that's so precise. And so it's just another way of conceiving of the world and life experience and the human experience, which is um, it's a difficult leap to make. Well, it'll, it'll mess your brain up a bit. Yeah, but it's good for it. <laughs> good for your brain, that is, you know? I mean, it helps with keep, helps your brain plastic, I think. The nature of the classical language and maybe the modern, I don't know, I've never studied modern Chinese, so I'll take your word for that, but is that you have to maintain all of these various meanings within your mind's eye or your field of vision simultaneously while you're focusing on maybe a single definition, but always knowing in the back of your mind that there's all these other definitions lurking. That's a challenging thing to do and not something I've mastered by any means, but I think that's part of the skill that one hopes to develop 
is to, Keats called it, negative capability. It's like the ability to maintain a variety of meanings and ideas, some of them even contradictory, within your frame of mind at the same time and not see them contradictory and not rule any of them out. Yeah. That sounds a whole lot like seeing patients in clinic. Totally. Right. (laughs) I mean, it does. We're constantly, we've got all these ideas and these thoughts and these concepts, and they all have a kind of reality to them. And then we bring it together in that moment of encounter with the patient and it, well, it could be some of this and it could be some of that. And then there's a gestalt of all the pieces together and it makes your brain work in a very quirky way. Yeah. But just point out, this is maybe the only third time I've, I've talked or corresponded with you, Michael, but every time you bring up working in clinic quite soon into the interaction, and I just have to say how much I appreciate that. Because <laughs> we get very heady in these conversations, and it gets very, very floating off into the ether pretty quickly. And I just appreciate how grounded that forces us to stay mm. by maintaining the, that reality at the forefront of your mind, which I've just noticed in the three times we've corresponded that you bring up pretty quickly, which is, but what about clinic? And how does this relate to clinic? Which is, yeah, yeah you got to keep your feet on the ground. Otherwise, we're just talking heads. Well, I get confused really easily. I find. And uh, if I've got something to ground it in, something that's, I'm going to say, reality-based. You know, clinic for me is very reality-based because I've got all my ideas, but then I've got a person in front of me with whatever experience they're having, and then whatever physically and psychoemotively is going on. And that is just like the greatest thing to keep you honest. Because it's like, I've got a great idea, man. Like, watch this treatment. This is beautiful. Wow, that didn't do a thing. Yeah, I know. None of my patients care how much I've read the Shang Han Lin. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> as, lo- as long as it, as long as they feel better, I could read and memorize whatever I want. As long as long as they feel better. And so, let me ask you: How did you get involved with classical Chinese? What took you down that particular rabbit hole? Well, it started with martial arts. It started with kung fu and training kung fu and training specifically a martial art called Xing Yi, which is mm. the Xing we were just talking about, form and matter, and then Yi, which is the, the Yi that we all argue over, what does that mean? But it can mean mind or intention. I like intention. That's really my, that's my favorite. So I was training that, uh, and I continue to train that, and then through uh, a group called the North American Tung Shi Dao Association based in Arizona, And the curriculums that are taught within our association that come from our teacher, Vince Black, the martial curriculums are always taught hand-in-hand with medicine. That's just just how it's done. It's how it's been done for, of course, hundreds and probably thousands of years. But within our little bubble here in the United States in 21st century America, we still try to do it that way. And so I was always just interested in training Gong Fu, and the medicine was there. We had our lineage of manual medicine of Twina and bone setting, and then our lineage of topical herbs. And I would never really that interested in it. I just wanted to train Gung Fu, but you kind of had to do the medicine. That was how it was done. That's the way it's done. You'd learn to take each other apart and put each other back together. Yeah. So I kind of, I tagged along doing the medicine because that's how it was done. And that's like the party line is that, well, if you improve your Gung Fu, then you improve your medicine. And if you improve your medicine, then you improve your gung fu. They're flip sides of the same coin. And so 
like I said, I just wanted to train Ching Yi. That's really what I really what I wanted to do was elevate that skill. So then I started to kind of just be exposed to the medicine through that, and then more and more just came around to it. I don't know how there wasn't a moment. It was just like little by little. I after three or four years of being immersed in this culture of our association and training our Ching Yi and other arts, I was just like, man, I love this. Like it's just. It's just incredible. <laughs> and then it kind of dawned on me at, at some point that well, maybe I actually love the medicine more than training Gong Fu. I don't know if that's really true. But it definitely was, I loved it enough that I was like, I need to be serious about a professional career in this and therefore have to consider acupuncture school and all of what that entails. And so I did that. And I was in Portland, Oregon, and there's two schools there. It's, you know, it's a thriving enough... Yeah, it's a hotbed of Chinese medicine there. Really a lot of great teachers there. Who knows why? It's kind of a funny thing that Portland, Oregon, of all places, would end up with all of these... Well, Pacific Northwest in general. Yeah. You know, Seattle, same thing. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So then I gravitated toward... Well, I'll tell you why, actually. We had been reading the Neijing within our association. This was one of the things that we got from our teacher, Vince, was that you have to study the Neijing. And that came to him from Vietnamese doctor um, Van Gee, who was um, also an aging scholar. And so Van Gee told Vince quite bluntly, like, if you want to be any good at this, or if anybody wants to be any good at this, they have to read the Neijing. So I had been reading whatever kind of mediocre translations I could get my hands on at that point, because this is 15 years ago, and there's even less available to read about the Neijing. Now it's quite cool how much there is to read about it. And uh, the sinological community that's like focusing on that field of study has really exploded, I feel like, in the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. So then I was exposed to thinking a lot about the Neijing. And then I found this program at the NUNM, the National University of Chinese Medicine, that focused on classics. And so I gravitated to that program. And then through the course of that study, ended up studying classical Chinese and training with some really great teachers there who were all classically based, could read and write the language, were well-versed in the Shanghan Lun and the Jingwe Yaolue and the Neijing. There were a number of Chinese teachers there who were trained in China and then migrate, emigrated here, you know, in the 90s. And they were old school. These doctors were like, it's funny, we have this dichotomy in this part of the world between TCM and classical Chinese medicine, and mm. which is just kind of just, I just don't think it exists. I just think it's a false dichotomy. And I think it has to do with the marketing, honestly. The marketing of Chinese medicine programs to consumers, I think they need to make, they want to make that dichotomy to make, to make one more valuable than the other. But you meet these doctors who are now in their 70s, and many of them had lived through the Cultural Revolution, and they saw no contradiction in studying TCM and memorizing the Neijing. That's just how it was done. And so there were a number of these doctors on the faculty at that school too. So it was a really interesting mix of younger Westerners who were training in, in that field of study and then old, I'm going to call them old school Chinese doctors who were yeah. trained yeah, yeah, yeah. in the 60s and 70s in the TCM institutions during and just after the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and, you know, and these guys walked around with little pocket versions of the Neijing in their back pocket. I've got a buddy who just gifted me with a pocket version of the Nanjing. Yeah, there you go. Just like a pocket version. It's, it's, I mean, I love all the big commentaries and all that. He just laid it. I swear it is. It's a pocket version. And he's like, well, just read this. Like, just go over it. It's not the greatest. It's in English. It's not the greatest translation. It's a good enough translation. 
it's small, it's portable, you can put it in your pocket. In between whatever, you can pull it out and just read over a difficulty again. What does it say to you now? Yeah, that's the definition of a clinical manual in my mind, you know, and I would see Dr. Chin is one of these doctors from, they all studied in Chengdu. They were all trained in Chengdu and they... There's a huge amount of people from Chengdu that have come to the United States to teach us medicine. One of my main teachers also is, she was from Chengdu. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, they must... It's curious. Yeah, it is curious, you know. Yeah, 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 how this all comes down to us. Anyway, so... You gravitated toward this. You like woke up one day and like, oh, I actually like medicine. In fact, I want to know more about medicine. Off to school you go and then into language you go. And we talked earlier about like how you get anywhere in this life. And one of us said something like, oh, yeah, accident and inspiration. That'll, there you go. <laughs> that'll get you to where you're going. It's like uh, qi and xing, which I don't really want to get into too much because that was a great, awesome conversation. And y'all can go... Get that over at, at Sabina Vilms's website. It's a rabbit hole for sure. For sure. But we do this. And partly, I think, because we're trying to understand this stuff is so damn interesting. And like we were saying, it's hard to nail it down. In fact, it's not meant to be nailed down. Right. If you're nailing it down, you're missing exactly. it. And yeah. one of the things for me, I mean, I speak a little Chinese. I read a little Chinese. I've been practicing medicine 20 plus years. Often enough with the idea that, oh, yeah, I, I know something like about what the ancients knew. And then I realize that's a lot of hubris. Like, how the hell could I even begin to imagine like the mental framework of somebody even a hundred years ago, let alone a thousand? Absolutely. And yet, and yet, here's the lovely contradiction. We have these materials that have come down to us through time, culture, dynasties. And so... Well, we are nothing like a Han Dynasty doctor. We're not, in fact, I, I don't think any of us could even be a Qing Dynasty doctor for that matter, just the differences in, in life and everything. Yet there's these like principles. There's something that comes through that kind of ignites within us that allows us to practice this thing we call, I don't know, Chinese medicine, Oriental medicine, East Asian medicine, classic tea. I mean, whatever you want to call it, you can put a name on it. It doesn't matter what name you put on it. There's this stuff that we do. Sure, yeah. For me, the language aspect of this practice, this is really difficult to quantify. I've been particularly like tuned into it over the past two years by studying with Sabina Vilms and, and doing her um, Peach Blossom Collective language studies, which is quite remarkable. It's hard. It's darn hard, you know? Re very rigorous. Look who your teacher is. <laughs> but man, it's, it's so illuminating. But anyways, I have these moments often over the past couple of years of doing that where it's usually, it's usually late at night because that's usually when I have the time and, and the space in my life to sit and think about these things. And you're sitting looking at these characters and you're looking at what's on your computer screen in this case. It's really hard to fathom that this is being communicated to you across that yawning space of time and culture to your little brain in your little corner of the universe on the other side of the world at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, and that these things have endured and that we still find them compelling, more than compelling. I mean, if these ideas are powerful enough to shift how you experience reality, I'd say that's more than compelling. I'd say that's seismic. And that's really what the potential is, is seismic change in, in one's perception of even the most mundane experiences in the world. And so that got kind of hooked on that. 
<laughs> to put it in a certain light, that feeling of like the Chinese character Tong. Tong shibu tong, but tong shibu tong. There you go. That was exactly the quote yeah. I was going to say. That one, you know. Yeah. yeah, the open tong. Exactly. Open connectivity, like between two things, between two entities, you know. And in the Neijing, it's a lot of talk about how you're going to tong with the heavens and open connectivity with the heavens. But it's not a one-way street. It's like you're connected with the heavens and the heavens are connected with you. It's like a, there's like this thoroughfare between those two places. And so there's that, that 11 o'clock at night on my computer uh, in the January in southern Vermont. I'm like tonging with Confucius. Right. Oh, Stefan, this is really <laughs> helpful because I am a really skeptical, I'm just like this Midwest meat and potatoes, skeptical kind of person. I really am. I live in Missouri, the show me state. That's the actual motto. I'm not kidding you. Missouri is the show me state. <laughs> I'm totally, that's me, man. And so, yeah, we're reading this stuff or we're getting these ideas, or we're learning, you know, whatever we're learning about the medicine. It's coming through time. It's coming through teachers. If we're lucky enough to be able to read and understand it, it's coming through that source as well. And I so often have that question. It's like, am I understanding this? Am I making shit up? Am I trying to fit these lovely poetic ideas into some kind of story that's a little self-aggrandizing and a little humbling and hopefully useful in clinic? I doubt myself all the time with it. Because I'm not sure that I actually understand what these people writing this stuff were talking about. Do I really understand it? I first go to, I'm probably misunderstanding it before I understand it. But when you bring up this idea and you bring up the capacity and the possibility that we can have this open communication that tongues, that lands in a very profound way with me. Good. I mean, that's because we hear this idea of transmission. And again, when I hear the word transmission, I always get a little bit squirrely. Like, are you sure that you're getting signal and not noise? Right. Or is it your vivid imagination, Michael Max, that's making this shit up? I'm always skeptical about stuff like that. But considering the possibility that through time there is this capacity for tongue, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think healthy skepticism is really important. So don't ever abandon that. I mean, it's built into me. I'm not... Yeah. Yeah. I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Well, it is. You know, when we're all so steeped in scientific paradigm of the 21st century that we should all be healthy skeptics in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there is a propensity for people in our profession to make stuff up. The kind of loosey-goosiness of the ideas and the loosey-goosiness of the language that we've just talked about with this whole negative capability, that definitely can lend itself to people going off off the res, so to speak, and just kind of spinning off in their own minds about what some of these ideas mean. So I think the healthy skepticism is really important, a really important part of it. But it's a balance, you know, because you do also want to leave yourself open enough to the possibility of with Confucius, with Zhuangzi, with the authors of the Neijing, with Zhang Zhongjing. So you have to really kind of split your brain and let yourself go there, but also be a little bit skeptical at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So this winds us a little bit. I want to come to something you mentioned earlier about your interest in E, right? Often translated as intention. Yes. Because this is another one of those things that for me is troublesome. And it's troublesome 
because I don't really understand what intention means. I used to think I did. I used to think it was kind of like, well, I, I want to do something. I got this idea. I'm, I want to go do it. Or I'd like to see something happen. Okay, is that desire or is that intention? That, that starts to get pretty slippery in there. And I hear people talk all the time in our profession about the importance of using intention in their work. But I got to tell you, man, the longer I go with this, the more I've got no idea. What exactly it means. <laughs> what exactly intention is. And when I hear people say that they're using it in their practice, I actually don't understand what that means. I have to ask them and, and like get specifics. Yeah. So again, this is one of those really slippery terms. We can put it right up there with you know, Xing and Qi and Yin and Yang, you know, E, significance, meaning, intention. Yeah. So let's noodle on this a bit with our sort of fuzzy, loose mind. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd say, you know, just in the context of Xing Yi, which is where I first encountered it. And this is how I think of it, is that within that context, we're using our, our Xing, we're using our forms to hone our intentions. And you are moving your body through a series of physical forms, your Xing, you're using your Xing to move through a series of physical forms. But then with your mentation, if you will, with your, with your intention, you are setting it differently each time with a different set of forms. And then, so it's through the use of your form, through the training of your form, through your use of your Xing, that you then train your intention. It doesn't get much closer to what your question of like, what is intention? But at least I just want to get that out of the way. That's really like how I thought a lot about intention before I ever got around to practicing medicine. But I find now I am one of those practitioners who I'll, I, yeah, I use intention every day. It's a big part of my needling. It's a big part of what I do clinically, both in terms of doing manual work, tweena, and doing acupuncture. So how it means to me, for instance, there is a form that we do where you move your chi takes about almost an hour to do. It's called Jing Luo Qigong, and you, you move your chi through the entire channel system of your body, and it follows the same, what we call the organ clock, but is really the, the tidal flow of chi and blood in our bodies that's explained in the Neijing. So this form follows that same order, same channel, channel the, the channel system that we all know, and you're using your intention the whole time. You're setting your intention with your hands and your mind to then trace the chi through each channel one by one. I'll go through all 12 channels. And so this is another way that we learn to, to hone our intention is by focusing our intention in a certain spot and then moving the chi with your intention, combination of your intention in your hand through each channel one by one. So in that case, like I am intending very specifically for the chi to move in a very specific place in a very specific way. And then that translates clinically particularly to acupuncture, uh, not really to tweena too, is for instance, if I set out to do tweena, my intention is to clear their gallbladder channel of their right leg. This is what I want to achieve clinically because I know it's going to have X, Y, and Z effects. Mm -hmm. Then I'm using the same skill that I've honed with my qigong and my gong fu to then set my intention at into my hand and then into the patient's channel and then move their qi with the aid of my physical hand, out and through the channel to clear the channel. And I'll tell you, if I don't set my intention clearly, it doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between me just like 
doing some tween uh, doing some hand techniques and not using my intention and me like cl- very clearly setting my intention like I'm going to clear this gallbladder channel with my hand. And then you can needling. It's very similar to needling. It's even cooler with needling because it's you set your intention at the tip of the needle, and then you can move your intention up and down the channel and different sorts of ways. And but still, always with this intention. It's like, what do I want to do? Do I want to tonify or do I want to clear? To kind of loosely categorize. And then I find if I don't set my intention clinically, then I'm just wandering all over the place. I'm like. Well, let's do a little of this. Let's do a little of that. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. And then the results are mediocre. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas, so that each meal is infused with medical intention, from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming, or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory. Practice it in your own kitchen and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books One and Two can easily be found online. And if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. So I'm hearing something that very much. Settles for me. I can like feel it in my body when I hear you say it, and that is that you ground it in your body. You ground it in your physicality. You ground it in form. Absolutely. Yeah. First and foremost, grind it into the form. Maybe it takes some grinding. <laughs> uh, and the next thing that I hear you talking about, and to me this sounds a lot like clear diagnosis. You're talking about being very precise with what you're looking to do. You're talking about gallbladder channel. Like there's a problem with the gallbladder channel. I'm going to dredge that gallbladder channel because there's an excess there. You're very clear with your diagnosis. You know what you're looking at and you know how you want to go after it. Yeah, absolutely. So this makes a lot of sense to me. Something that I remember learning in school and this was very unsatisfying. You know, things like, well, we put a needle here and what that needle is going to do is it's going to move the chi and then that's going to help blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, we're moving the chi. And like, so what? Yeah. It's like there's no intelligence in that. It's like there's something missing. But to be able to go, yeah, I'm going to move the chi in this specific place. And I'm going to do it through this specific method. In the same way that you'd say, I'm going to go cut that tree down. And here's step one, two, three, four, five. And then we got wood stacked up. Yeah. That's very different from, well, we're just going to cut the tree down. That tree needs to come down. We're going to get that tree down. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And the clearer I get as I progress, I've been doing this professionally for a little little less than 10 years, but the clearer I get with that intention, the faster the results, honestly, and the less kind of noodling around that I have to do in order to produce positive effects with patients. But it also, it comes back to this famous line in the Neijing about needling. And I'm not going to get this quote totally right, but it's about it's like you want to when you're needling somebody, you want to make sure all of the 
windows are closed, and you want to needle as though you're staring into the edge of the abyss, and you're holding a tiger by the tail. I'm pretty sure that's all the pieces. So basically, no fucking you, around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, we can swear on this podcast. Why didn't you tell me that? Can, well, <laughs> I don't often swear, but I just heard you talk about it. It's like the windows are closed. You're staring at the abyss. It's like, all right, buckle up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. Like really, like no messing around. Like you with the needle. Like listen up, Bubba. This is serious stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This is serious stuff. Yeah. And so that's where I go with my intention is to the tip of the needle. And I have that quote in my mind often. It's like staring over the edge of the abyss and holding a tail by the tiger. And with my intention, honing in on the edge of that needle. And then from there, you can do different things. And you're clear. You have this aspect of clarity that goes with it. You know what you're looking at and you know what you want to do with it. Yes. I'm not always right. <laughs> well, okay, there's that. So let's be clear about that. That just because I'm like clear on my intention and or I try to be clear on my intention and I try to like utilize this because intention is a skill like anything else. It's a skill. And it's it's something that we can all develop and hone through a variety of different practices, but it's something you can get better at. And that's really the important thing. So even though I try to be as clear as possible on that intention, like sometimes it's like, I'm just not right. And it's just, I'm just like barking up the wrong tree. And it's uh, so. Well, there's something really helpful, I think, here about going all in on what we think it is. If we're right, we're helpful. If we're wrong, we find out how we're not right. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you're kind of like loosey goosey about it and you're right, so what? What did you learn about that? It's a similar, it's like why I really love the Shang Han Lun formula so much. Because if like, if you're right, there's no question. And if you're not, there's no question. It's like that did not produce the effect that I was going for. So, but you know, as far as like working with and like honing the intention, we'll call it. If you just, you can just think about it very like viscerally and physically, because I really think that I really try to like kind of always come back to our physical forms because it's easy when you're talking abstractly about the energetics of things to spin off into the ether. And if you're talking about your body, you're talking about your body. Everyone can relate to that. So to hone your intention like physically and in your form, if you think like I have, I'm going to have the intention of raising my right finger right now, but not actually raise my finger, what does that feel like? And you can feel like there's a, if you do that, if you do that little exercise, there's like this little bit of tension that gets introduced into the muscles and tissues of your finger, but it hasn't yet expressed into the movement of your finger. So that's a good, I think, a good physicalization of intention and setting an intention that you can do with really any body part or any movement. But just that moment, what does that moment right before you move feel like, before you've actually completed the move? Like, what is that moment in that space there? That's where the intention resides. It's like there's a potency in that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And the more that I kind of work with that clinically too, the more like, for instance, stimulating the needles used to be like this thing that I just did because somebody said I should do it. And I was like, oh, I'll go twist the needles a little bit. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'll just do it. And then now I'm like, oh, no, now I know what I'm doing. I'm going in with my intention to each one of those needles and I'm focusing my intention on the tip of that needle and I'm holding it like a, the tail of a tiger at the edge of an abyss. And then I'm doing that on all 12 of these needles. Then that totally changes the tenor of a treatment. The word tong comes to mind. For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I certainly don't think, say that I 
pull that off every day. You know, I mean, that's really kind of, that's what I go for, but we all have our ups and downs and there's plenty of days when I'm spacing out or I didn't sleep well or or whatever it is where my intention is not all there. But I, I don't know, the more I do this, the more I'm like, this is, it's, this is what it's all about. This is how you achieve the miraculous and subtle that Ling Shu One talks about with the, with the needles. Like that's where the miraculous subtlety resides is in working with the intention. And it really takes time. Oh yeah. I feel like I just, I'm at the tip of the iceberg and I'm almost a decade into this. <laughs> I hope I get to do this for another 30 years because I got the, plenty more to figure out. <laughs> I've been at it for getting close to a quarter century, which is a weird thing to think about. That time can go by that quickly. One of the thoughts that I frequently have is, you know, I thought by now I'd know a whole lot more than I do. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thought that comes up right next to it is, man, I've learned a lot more than I ever imagined I would. Right. And both of those things are true. Yes. The privilege that we have of being able to go into clinic, here I go again, bringing it back to clinic, to be able to go into, and I do call it a sacred space, and I don't use that term lightly, to be able to be with another human being in a moment of difficulty for them or they wouldn't be in front of us, and to puzzle through what might be helpful. It's an extraordinary opportunity to do all this kind of cultivation that you're talking about. You know, we talk about cultivation all the time in our work. I don't know if the schools advertise this to students that, oh, yeah, so you're going to get out of here in three or four, maybe five years, and then, you know, 10 years from now, you'll start to get it. They wouldn't have any students if they said that. (laughs) You wouldn't have any students for good reason. How about nursing school? I could pull down a cool 80,000 in my second year. Step out of graduation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But you know what? I think that what you were just saying about like working clinically for 25 years and feeling on the one hand, wow, I've learned a lot. And on the other hand, wow, I don't really know anything. Well, no, not that I don't know anything. I know that I know some things. It's that I thought I would know more. Okay. That's different. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's different. Yeah. I'd say that working clinically brings me a similar feeling, but also being aware of the depth and breadth of the history of this medicine brings me a similar feeling Mm -hmm. of every once in a while, I get a little on my high horse about how much I know and how much I've studied. And then you, all it takes is a little bit of study to see that 2000 years of the written history of this medicine is like, what have I done? Not a lot in the face of that. And so I think those two things for me are keep me grounded, both clinical work and then looking back 2,000 years and knowing where we come from. Yeah. And again, there's an open conduit. If we can work our way to it, we can tong into some sense of what those other people were experiencing. Yeah, it's there. That's exactly right. You know, I mean, I remember when I, both when I left school and when I've had teachers pass in the past couple of years, I've had some really important teachers pass and I've thought like, man, what am I going to do? Like these people are gone. Like I have no guidance. Like I'm just floating here now. Guess what? It's even worse because now you're the guy. I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) No, no. I mean, in terms of in charged with keeping that flame alive and passing it along, yeah, that's your responsibility now. Well, and that's where the texts come in, I think, is like that teachers pass and it's tragic and it's always going to be hard and it's always going to be kind of a gut-wrenching thing. 
but the texts will be there, thankfully. And your experience with your teachers will be there. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. But I think that that tonging, for lack of a better translation of it, because I agree, it is. It's one of those, it's like chi. It's like it can't really be translated, so why should we try? So that lack of tonging is kind of one of the things that's the most empty about modern medicine, is that it's got nowhere to tong to, is that it's always looking forward, it's always moving into the future, and so there is nothing to be openly connected with in its past. And that's really what one of the things that this medicine has to offer, is exactly that, is is looking backwards, looking backwards to move forwards. Yes. Now, and this again is a place where I feel like we need to be careful easy to be nostalgic. It's easy to, it's like, oh, I'm part of an XYZ lineage and that it's like belonging to an exclusive club. I know for myself, I'm I'm not speaking for anyone else other than me. It's easy to fall into thinking I might know something that I don't actually know. Yeah. Because I'm kind of riding on someone else's coattails or there's a famousness about something or there's a something about something. And if I'm connected to it, then it means that I've got it. But I don't think that's the case. It's like I could be connected to it, but that means I've got an opportunity to learn from it. It doesn't mean I have it. Right. You have to verify it. You know, this is one of I've been studying this quote from the Neijing. I'm teaching this Neijing, or co-teaching this Neijing class right now. And this quote that we have been talking about is comes up a few times, and it's something along the lines of, the methods come from the ancient times, the fa come from the ancient times, the yan, the verification comes from beginning right now. And then a couple of lines later, the next line, here we go back to tonging. And then after those things are complete, this is me extrapolating, but what they seem to be saying is that once those things are complete, then you will be tong with that which is without end. You will tong with the infinite if you need to talk on about it. I'll just let that sit for a minute. Yeah. Yes. And all y'all that are listening to this right now, you can just hit rewind for a second. It's a good one. And, and where's this from again? It's from the Ling Shu, I think, 71 or 73. But first of all, one of the things that blows my mind about that is that that was written probably in like first century BC. So they're talking about the methods that came from the ancients, like the ancients for them. Mm-hmm. And then their, the verification for them began then, first century BC uh, in the Han Dynasty. But for us, it's quite different. The methods of the ancients came from first century BC, from the Ling Shu and the, and the Neijing or the Suwen. And then the verification begins right now with what we do every day in the clinic. But even more than that, really like how we see the world, how we experience reality, all of that holds the potential to verify these things. And then what I think is the payoff is this tonguing with the infinite, this tonguing with with that which is without end. I'm just thinking that if religion did that, it would cause a lot less damage. (laughs) For sure. Well, and it's through lines like that that you can see that the Neijing ranks with the great religious texts of, of, of humanity, with the Torah and the Quran and the Bible. Like it really ranks up there because they're talking about the same ideas of the same breadth and scope and with the same potential to change our experience, the, the potential to change the human experience, which is pretty heady stuff for acupuncture. Every time I read the Ling Shu, I'm like, man, this is a lot for acupuncture. Okay, so it's heady in a way, but I'm sitting here with you in this moment in time. It's a beautiful fall day here in St. Louis, Missouri. It rained all night, and 
throughout most of the morning. It's gray. It looks like the Pacific Northwest, except we have vibrant colors on the trees. I'm sitting here taking all that in my window as I'm talking to you about this air quotes heady stuff. But man, do I feel it in my body. Exactly. It lands in a way that makes me just want to slow down a little bit. Well, and if you think about how the authors of the Neijing were trying to encapsulate their embodied experiences in language. This is what the Neijing is, you could say. It's like their best attempt at, at writing down what they were embodying. What you just described is like, oh, well, this is something that's embodied to you now. Mm-hmm. So our job, our process is the opposite. Our process is to take what they have written and then embody it in, in our experiences. Yeah, it just happened for me. It just landed. I just got a little taste of it. Oh, that's what Tong feels like. Or maybe one expression of what Tong feels like. Well, and that's a good, great point, actually, is that this verification is not, it's not like there's one way to verify it. It's like, you know, this is not an evidence-based scientific experiment where it's like, this is the answer that you're going to come up with. It's like everybody's verification is going to, it can vary wildly. And you could give a hoot about Chinese medicine and still find ways to verify what the Neijing says in your daily life. That's a provocative statement. One of my jobs now, I feel like, is to look around me and try to verify what the Neijing says to me and why the leaves are falling off the trees right now, or why my children behave the way they do. Seemingly like disparate and unrelated events, like they can really all be kind of wound up together by what's written in the Neijing. And so I feel like that's almost more than like how to clinically apply these ideas. I'm almost more interested in like how I can put on what I started to call my, my, my Neijing goggles, you know, like looking at, at looking out at the world and, mm. and understanding it from that perspective. And that's exciting for me. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Well, yeah, and if we can better understand the cycles of nature beyond, oh, it's fall and the leaves fall down. If we can use that to better understand why and how our children are behaving the way they are and how we are with our spouse and maybe how a certain food feels in our body. Or how the stock market operates. I get really tripped out thinking about how the stock market 
is an expression of yin yang theory. That's one of my favorites to well, they call it the Daily Dow. I mean, come on. It's like right in front of us. No secret there. How's the Dow doing today? That's good. That's good. I want to pivot just a little bit. Something I'd written down earlier that I wanted to talk with you about. And I don't want to get away without bringing this up. It's a bit of a pivot, but of course, it'll touch on everything else because that's just the way our medicine works. We were talking a little bit at one point in email about tensegrity. This is something that's really got my attention lately. Not just because I live in St. Louis where we have this botanical garden with this giant geodesic Buckyminster dome. Ah, uh, nice. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We might have the biggest geodesic dome in the world. Wow, I had no idea. That's, that's very cool. Right here in St. Louis, yeah. And, and inside is a... Uh, like tropical jungle. It's a climatron. And all y'all is listening, if you ever make it to St. Louis, the Missouri Botanical Garden is not to be missed. Truly incredible. Anyway, tensegrity, how things hold themselves together. How living structures hold themselves together, yeah. Yes, how living structures. Well, not and not just living structures, okay. So I had an, a beautiful example of tensegrity a couple weeks ago. This like popped into my mind. I was out with a friend, we were sailing. We're sailing these very complex little racing boats. They're like 16 feet long. A lot of sail, lots of lines, lots of lines. And there's all this like rig tension that holds the thing together. So before you put the sails up, it looks like a spaghetti factory. There's just like lines all over the place. And it's all slack and it just looks like a mess. Like what the hell's going on in here? But once you put the sails up and everything's got its proper amount of tension, it's like everything snaps to grid. Everything's in its exact place. Everything has the space to move the way it needs to move. Yes. Uh -huh. It comes alive under tension. Correct. Yeah. So not just living things. I mean, living things for sure, but even something like a sailboat. I guess I specified living things because I know... In my readings about Tensegrity and Buckminster Fuller and how he developed this concept is that he was basing that idea on living structures. Mm. So even though his geodesic domes are, are man-made structures, they're based on living forms. So Yes, that's where he got his inspiration. So I guess that's why I qualified it. But yeah, it's such an interesting term. And Tensegrity's tension with integrity. Mm. And... I talk about this a lot in clinic, actually, because I'm how I explain to people how their forms are functioning, how their shings are functioning, is we're not compression structures, we're tensegrity structures. In that most buildings out in the world, except for geodesic domes, are compression structures. They're just building materials stacked up on each other. And if you, for instance, plow your car into the corner of one of those buildings and the whole the whole corner will fall down because everything is stacked up using the weight of gravity. And then once you remove the lower members, then gravity takes over and everything falls down. But tensegrity uses just how you, like how you really eloquently described with the sails about how they came alive. It uses the tension of those tensile membranes to then create structural in integrity. So that then if you were to say, drive a car into the corner of a building that was a tensegrity structure, it would be able to then shuttle the trauma from that accident around to different parts of the building. 
And this is how our this is what our bodies are. This is how we can be in car accidents. This is how we can have really terrible physically traumatic things happen to us and get up and go and not be completely disabled like a building that's been plowed into with a car. So it's such a relevant term. That's really the word. It's just so relevant to our bodies and how they function, and then therefore I think how to to really maintain them and to keep them functioning. Not just clinically, but how you stay physically fit and able, especially as we age. Yeah, exactly. Most especially. I got some experience with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only at the front end of that, but enough to know enough to know what's coming, you know. So it's coming. So when you think about tensegrity and you think about how we think of physiology through our medical tradition, what would you say are some of the main components that go into that? Well, I thought a lot about it in terms of the tendon channels. I don't even know if they're taught in acupuncture schools. I know that they might have been a part of my boards that I took 10 years ago, but they're certainly really not a part, I don't think, of most people's practice, medical practice, and not really like in our mind's eye when we're practicing Chinese medicine. But it's a whole field of study in and of themselves, and they suffer in the Neijing, they They have a whole chapter dedicated to their pathways. They suffer a pathology that is really exclusive to the tendon channels. And I think that if you take this idea of tensegrity and then apply it to the tendon pathway descriptions that are in the Neijing, then you can begin to see how those tendon pathways function physiologically. So that's what they have to do with each other is you're given these really rote passages in the Ling Shu chapter 13. You're just given like page after page of like, this is the tendon channel and this is where it goes. And then you're like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? But if you take tensegrity and apply it to that, then it's very illuminating. And then if you start to see the body as a tensegritus system, I don't know if that's even a word. But <laughs> you might have just coined a word. Yes, it is a tensegritus system. That can definitely help you clinically. You can definitely start to understand how different t- tendon channels function. And if a tendon channel has suffered trauma in one particular part, but then you see a problem that is expressing somewhere else in that channel or even in another tendon channel, and you understand that this is a system of tensegrity, then you can start to see how that car accident causing that trauma then ricocheted across the person's body. And it has a real logic to it. And I think, I don't know this, I haven't gotten good enough yet, but I think that if you get good enough, you could probably start to predict people's traumas. In that, like you can, if you get to know this, the system as a system of tensegrity and well enough that you can know, well, I got, they had a car accident in their, and they got hit in their right hip, then you can know that, well, someday you might have problems in your left shoulder. So I, I don't know that, but that's kind of where I, I think that it would go. It could be prognostic that way. Yeah. That makes sense. And what we know of channel pathways and trajectories and law channels and how things are connected to each other. We have the maps. We do. That tell us a whole lot if we go bother to look. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, especially thinking as it's insegritous unit. Now, when you're working with the tendon meridians, the tendon channels, is that usually through Twainod? Do you use needles for that? What, what's your way of interacting with those? I usually think of it with Twina, you know. I mean, I know that there are schools of thought that talk about how the Wei Qi flows in the tendon channels, and I don't know much about those. I really only know what the Neijing says. So, yeah, I mostly think of about it in terms of Twina and all of the joint manipulation that goes along with doing Twina. But they're quite different from the primary channel pathways, from all the Luo vessels, all the divergent channels. All of that, in the Neijing at least, is talking about circulation of blood and qi, but physically blood. 
the tendon channels don't have any circulatory nature to them, in, in, in my reading of the Neijing. They don't have blood moving in them the way that the Jingmai do, which makes them really different. And totally, like I said, completely underexplored and therefore underutilized. Yeah, well, you just opened up a whole new can of worms here. That sounds like a fruitful, a potentially fruitful inquiry. Yeah, for sure. I thought a lot about it 10 years ago. I wrote a master's thesis on the topic, and then I hadn't thought about it until last week when I got my thesis out and read it again, and it got me jazzed for it. Isn't it funny how sometimes something will come up, we'll focus on it, we'll think about it, maybe practice with it a bit, and then it kind of goes dormant, do all these other things, and, and then it arises again sometime down the road. So let me take another look at that. And there's a whole new landscape to explore. For sure. Yeah, exactly. I'm 10 years on in, in my life and also in my study of this medicine. So there's a whole new perspective to be had. It really is an iterative practice I have found. Iterative. What, is, what does that mean? Iterative means we come back to something again and again and again. Uh, and like again iteration. And again. I get it. Yeah. Iteration. Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. Yeah, that's a really great yeah. way to think of it. We could look at it as like, oh God, this thing again? I thought I had this settled. I thought I had this sorted out. It's like, well, you did have it sorted out. And now another turn around the spiral. It's an iterative process. Now it's a chance to learn about it in another way. That's a really great way to think about it. That's a great word to say it too. <laughs> yeah. And, and when you mix tong in with that, because you don't just tong something once and like, okay, I got it now. Okay, I tong jang jong jing. I got it now. It's like, no, tonging into something, you can go ping that again. Yeah. There'll be something else there. There'll be something else there. Yes. All right. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this time with you, and I, I suspect we could yammer on about a whole lot of other stuff, but we had some technical problems earlier on, and I know you have got things to do. So maybe you'll come back and we can have a conversation again about uh, some other stuff. Anytime. I'd be happy to. This was really a lot of fun. I'm always happy to riff on these things. Great. Just before we wind it on down for all those that are listening and for any that are thinking about, should I investigate learning a little Chinese or not? Why would it be helpful? Well, I guess it would come back to the, what I think has been the theme of this conversation, which is tong, which is openness and, and open connectivity, that when it boils down to it, there really is no way to have that open connectivity with the roots of our medicine without some study of the language. That doesn't mean you have to get a PhD in it and, and study it in school for years and years. But even just the most basic familiarity of some important characters will open up that connectivity in, in really exciting ways. Not only enliven your practice, but it'll really it'll enliven how you look at and experience the world. We may have to pick that up in our next conversation, some of the important characters. That would be fun. For sure. All right, Stefan, thank you so much for this time today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this and have a whole new perspective on Tong. I'm curious to see how it's going to show up in my work. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. It's been fantastic. When I first started studying Chinese, I thought that if I could understand the medicine in Chinese, then I'd be able to explain it better in English. I was wrong. But what I did find was that learning a language that doesn't nail things down like English does was helpful in that our work in clinic is rarely a step-by-step -step logical flowchart. As we discussed in this conversation, it requires us to hold different ideas and possibilities all at the same time. And so 
puzzling through Chinese can help us not because we understand for sure, but that it becomes possible to consider multiple possibilities and allow that to inform our clinical decisions. There is a lot in the Chinese language that doesn't quite translate into English. And so I want to put in a plug here for learning some medical Chinese because it actually makes practicing the medicine a little bit easier. And there's a great app that can help you with that. It's called Chinese Medical Characters. It's available for both the Apple and Android universes. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. (laughs) 